disrupting the cybercrime-as-a-service ecosystem, and massive data breach affects millions of T-Mobile customers. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Anna Delaney. Many criminals operating online continue to rely on the services of initial access brokers. They sell access to networks that have already been hacked. To discuss this key part of the cybercrime-as-a-service ecosystem, I'm joined by executive editor Matthew Schwartz. Great to see you, Matt. Hello, Anna. So, Matt, what are initial access brokers providing? So if you think about the life cycle of a hack attack, you might think that there is that single hooded individual sneaking around in the basement, remotely accessing networks and shaking them down for large sums of money all on their own. But when you look at cybercrime, it's actually much more like a business, albeit an illicit business. And there are lots of suppliers that help facilitate these kinds of activities. Initial access brokers are one of those, and they gather up access to a bunch of different sites and then sell them on to others who might want to access those networks. Oftentimes, it'll be via remote desktop protocol or VPN credentials that have been accessed somehow by an attacker and then provided to the broker. And some remote connection is established that they then can sell on to the buyers. And like a lot of sellers, there will be guarantees that these accesses will work or you get your money back. In addition, a lot of them will be advertised. So if you want to hit a manufacturing firm with a certain amount of revenue that is based in the United States, maybe, for example, because you're a ransomware operation that specializes in hitting U.S. manufacturers, then you can often order that off the menu, if you will. And so the average price based on a study from Israeli threat intelligence firm Kila is $5,400. That's the average price for one of these accesses. But actually, the median is interesting as well. That was $1,000. A lot of these accesses that are being sold are relatively inexpensive. But then for some of the really big, juicy targets, they're charging a lot more. Because again, if you're a ransomware gang, for example, and you manage to shake this organization down for $10 million, $20 million, then paying a few thousand or tens of thousands for the initial access would have been a good investment. So it's also important to note with this research that Keela did is they only looked at what was publicly accessible on cybercrime forums in terms of listings. We also know that a lot of access brokers will only offer deals after you've first established contact with them, for example, via private messaging, direct messaging, that sort of thing. We also know that some partner with ransomware operators in particular, in order to give them first access to the most juicy targets. So in that case, you know, we don't know how many of these accesses are really being advertised. So based on what we do know, how have these service providers been allowed to run unchecked? Like a lot of cybercrime, it seems like a lot of these operators are residing in places that are difficult for Western law enforcement agencies to reach. One really fascinating finding for me from the Kilo research was they found that about 10 people were responsible for handling 46% of all of the initial access listings. They counted more than a thousand of them. Again, this is just the ones that they can see. But if you think that 10 individuals in the world are responsible for nearly half of all of the access being sold, surely this would make them an obvious target. For a little more perspective on this, 
I reached out to Alan Woodward. He's a cybercrime expert, visiting professor of computer science at the University of Surrey. I saw him on a panel in InfoSec Europe a few years back, and he had said that there were maybe at most 200 core people in the world facilitating cybercrime. So I said to him, what if there's only 10 people facilitating nearly half of all these accesses being sold? Here's what he said. It's the old 95% problem in that, you know, that the last 5% might be spread across hundreds of people. But actually, what you're going for is that force multiplier. If you could hit those 10 people and arrest them, then half the market disappears. So that's a big dent in the market. I mean, it's because it is always a game of whack-a-mole, it, you can't, you're, you're never going to take out 100% of the market. But what they will always be looking at in gathering the intelligence about these people is, where can I get the biggest bang for my buck, if you like? And that's where they will focus. And that, I suppose some people will say, well, the police aren't focusing on my crime. It's a bit like when people in the UK report a data breach or something to action fraud. They say, oh, I never hear anything back. What they don't see behind the scenes and the reason, and I, it's rather sad that they're not told this, that the reason it's so valuable is that all gets them put into a huge intelligence machine, which starts to allow them to then pinpoint where these people are they start you know you start to see commonalities which allow you to track these people down and consequently your bit of the picture of the puzzle unfortunately it might not get sold you might not hear a lot about it but it is then used to try and sort of you know cut the head off the snake um, so that a it doesn't happen anymore but secondly more importantly once you build that big picture you can start to sort of pinpoint I mean, you, you do things like link analysis and all the rest of it, and you start to see the commonalities in where things are coming from, you know, geographical ideas, because criminals only need to make a mistake once. If you look at the history of how the FBI, for example, have managed to grab a lot of people, they have watched them and watched them and watched them, and sometimes it's taken three years, but then they've made one mistake and revealed their real IP address, and within 24 hours, they've been arrested. So the law is not always quick, but it is patient. So no doubt law enforcement is trying to identify these individuals to then arrest them or at least disrupt their operations. That does seem to be the MO of cybercrime police, for sure. Now, it's interesting to look at brokers. Alan likened them to being fencers, not the sport, but if you think about crime in the movies, when someone needs to get rid of a, you know, a watch or a hoard of gold or something, they hand it over to a fence. And they are offering a relatively specialized service, which Alan says that's obviously the case here as well. There's not that many individuals in the world who seemingly have the range of skills, expertise, and connections you need in order to be this provider of initial accesses. But they, behind them, probably have a lot of people feeding this. Then, of course, these brokers are selling it on to a lot of other individuals. So law enforcement will be trying to identify them all. And when they do try to disrupt, to disrupt as much of it as possible. But again, if they can take out even a fraction of these 10 individuals, that could have a huge impact on the cybercrime ecosystem and especially the ransomware ecosystem. So no doubt that is what they are waiting patiently to try to affect. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news.
The spotlight was on T-Mobile USA this week as it admitted that its systems were breached and details for 8.6 million customers was stolen. To share more on the story is ISMG's Jeremy Kirk, Managing Editor for Security and Technology. T-Mobile confirmed late on Tuesday that attackers broke into its network and downloaded personal details for nearly 50 million people. Unfortunately, that data is now for sale on the dark web. The story had been rolling along after some data belonging to T-Mobile customers turned up in an online forum about a week ago. The data consisted of 30 million social security and driver's license numbers. It was put up for sale on the forum for six bitcoins or around $286,000. On Monday, T-Mobile said it had closed the entry point where the intruders gained access and that it was undertaking a forensic analysis. Now T-Mobile says the breach affected 7.8 million current postpaid customer accounts. It also includes 40 million people who are either former customers or prospective ones who applied for credit with the company. That data includes first and last names, birth dates, social security numbers and driver's license numbers, or ID information. There are also a couple other points of exposure. T-Mobile says that 850,000 prepaid customers were affected. That data included names, phone numbers, and account pins. Account pins are the secret numbers that customer service representatives ask for when a customer wants to get like a replacement SIM card or move a number to a new carrier. As a result, T-Mobile says it's proactively resetting those pins. It's also contacting those affected and offering them a two-year subscription to an ID theft protection service. T-Mobile's figures differ somewhat from what those who breached the company claim. This isn't so uncommon early in a forensics investigation, and T-Mobile does caution that its figures are preliminary. I've been chatting with the attackers over instant messaging. They claim they took a total of 100 million records. Now, 64 million of those belong to prepaid customers and 36 million belong to postpaid, although they say that some are duplicate records. The attackers say there was also some technical phone data taken, including international mobile subscriber identity and international mobile equipment identity numbers. So how did the attackers get in? The person who claims to have breached T-Mobile says the company left a gateway GPRS support node, or GG, GSN exposed to the internet. GGSNs are routers that sit between a mobile operator's network and the internet. The person claims they pivoted to T-Mobile's LAN and then eventually to about 100 Oracle servers that contain the data. Computer security and cybercrime analysts are closely examining the claims made by those in this incident. But analysts say the actors around the periphery of the intrusion appear to have been involved in telco-related hijinks in the past. For T-Mobile, this is the latest breach for a company that's had at least one data loss incident a year for the last three years, and that's left a lot of people shaking their heads. There's also a question as to why T-Mobile was still hanging on to the data of 40 million former customers and people who didn't even become customers. Best data practices recommend that data no longer needed should be discarded. And now we see the danger in keeping it. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. And finally, sadly, cyberbullying is endemic in our modern digital environment. Accordingly, a group of cybersecurity professionals have launched an initiative called Respect in Security to take a stand against all forms of harassment and abuse within the industry. To tell us more about the campaign is one of its co-founders, Rick Ferguson, VP of Security Research at Trend Micro, who describes the group's commitment to creating workplaces free from harassment and fear, as well as how organizations and individuals can sign up to take the Respect and Security Pledge. Part of what we want to address as Respect and Security, we want to do our bit to do as much as we can to help to create an industry that as a whole doesn't tolerate uh, abusive or harassing 
behavior and that abusers do not get the chance to thrive on misuse of position or power or get the chance even just to abuse, whether it's about misuse of position or power or not. I need to stress that we are a very young organization. We are a group of individuals who came together uh, with a shared belief, a shared cause and a shared aim. And we are very much in learning mode right now. But the thing is, we could have stayed in learning mode forever. We could have carried on having WhatsApp group chats or passing ideas around by email and saying, well, this might be a good idea and this might be a good idea. We didn't want to do that. We wanted to make sure that we started something um, and that we are now actively seeking the input and the, the support of the wider security community. That's the point of the pledges, to get companies to open up and to say, we as an organization, we also don't tolerate abuse or harassment. And actually, if one of our employees is doing this, we want to know about it. And here's the correct route for you as a victim to take. That's it from the ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time.